I always love it when I'm like giving announcements and all of a sudden it turns into like teaching. It's, it's like, wait, that has nothing to do with what I want to talk about this morning. That's, that's a teacher for you. It's a scary thing. Don't ever ask teachers, you know, for directions or things like that. It's just way more information than you want, you know. Like an hour later, you're like, I didn't need to know all that information. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Continuing to, to study and make our way through Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth. And if you're new here, we, uh, we go verse by verse through the Bible. On Sundays, we go through the New Testament. And, and we're going through Second Corinthians chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most personal letter. It's a letter where we get a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul. We see his passions. We see his hurts. We see his feelings. We see his disappointments, his difficulties. We see what made him happy, what broke his heart what motivated him. And, you know, that's a real privilege for us to be able to see into the heart of Paul. Because normally Paul is just all about doctrine and business and getting down to the point, right? It's like, here's what I wanted to share with you. Here's what you need to know. Here's truth. And it's good stuff. But here is a personal letter. Here's a a way that we can see into the heart of a man who loved Jesus with every fiber of his being. It's a real privilege for us. And as a teaching pastor, it's been my desire of late to share my heart more, to open my heart more. Because I think it's easy as as a teacher, as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, to just simply dispense information. And that is sort of, I think, what I used to think Bible teaching was. It was teaching a text, it was giving information, it was theology, it was doctrine. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need doctrine. We don't want to shy away from it and become ignorant of the Word. We need theology. Theology is just simply your understanding of God. Theology is a good thing. You need to have a proper understanding of God. It needs to come from the Word. And information is good. We need knowledge. But knowledge in and of itself, the Bible says, puffs up. And so my heart has been of late to share more of my heart. To not just simply be a dispenser of information. Because we can do that and not even have the Holy Spirit. You can dispense information without the power of the Lord. You can dispense information and give people good thoughts and not even really be called to be a Bible teacher. That isn't what really defines Bible teaching. And of late, I've I've just really seen that. I think that dispensing information and teaching people and allowing people to see things in the Word that maybe they didn't see before, those things really have been really easy for me even as a young believer I knew that God was calling me to teach the word 
And it's been sort of this evolution and process in my life and in my teaching ministry where I've seen that when I'm vulnerable, when I'm open, when I share my heart, that it's more effective. And you guys, that applies in your life as well. Because I don't want that to only be true of me where I'm sharing my heart. I want it to be true of all of you. So as you're talking to each other, that fellowship goes beyond the weather and sports and work and the kids. And it becomes more personal. And you open your heart to people. That's fellowship. That's the purpose of home groups. It's the purpose of getting to know each other. Being vulnerable with one another. And the thing is, is that being vulnerable and sharing your heart, sometimes you will be hurt. Sometimes people will take advantage of that. Sometimes people will take your heart and they'll stomp on it. And maybe that's why you say, look, I used to be real vulnerable. I used to be like an open book and people could just see into my heart. But I've closed that off because I was hurt. Well, the thing is, Paul's writing to this church. He's opening his heart to them. And they had hurt him in a big way. But he said, the way in which I'm going to connect with you, the way in which I'm going to reach you, is to continue to open my heart to you, even though you've stomped on it. Even though you've taken advantage of me. Even though you've assassinated my character. And drugged my name through the mud. Stabbed me in the back and talked behind my back. You know, all those things have probably happened to you. And that's probably why you've closed your heart off. That's probably why you said, look, I'm going to talk about the weather. I'm going to talk about sports, talk about safe stuff that won't be used against me. You guys, we've got to become vulnerable. Jesus was vulnerable. And yes, it will, it can, it has been hurtful. That doesn't mean we stop doing it. Because if you truly want to connect with people and minister to people and help people, you won't do it unless you open your heart to them. Unless you become vulnerable to them. And along the way, you'll get hurt. It's part of life. It's part of ministry. It's part of our walk with God. Jesus said it. The servant is not greater than his master. If these things happen to me, they'll happen to you. If we want to have the heart of Jesus, we're going to go through the same things Jesus went through. It's kind of part and parcel to the whole thing. Paul said that he filled up in his flesh what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It doesn't mean that somehow there were things that Jesus didn't accomplish on the cross. What it means is that Jesus left us a ministry of suffering. It's not super exciting to think of it that way, but that's sort of what's been left to us is the ministry that he left behind. When you deal with people, which is what we're called to do, a Christian hermit is an oxymoron. Can't be that. You know, people say, man, I love Jesus. It's just his people that I can't stand. Well, 1 John tells us that that's not possible. Read 1 John. See what he says. If you don't have love for your brother, then the love of God is not in your heart. Um, 
actually afterward you, you can, sure. Yeah. Um, and so the thing is, is that we need to have love for people. We need to have a desire to open our heart and to let people in and to be vulnerable to them. And so in our text this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into Paul's heart. We're going to see what Paul's driving passion was. What sort of was a priority to him in his heart. As we look at his heart in, in really three ways this morning in our, in our text. We're going to see his heart for the lost. We're going to see his heart to finish well and his heart to grow. So let's look at his heart for the lost, verses 1 and 2. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so Paul here shares with us his heart for the lost. His passion for evangelism. Paul had a desire to reach people with the gospel. It's because God has a desire to reach people with the gospel. Paul was an evangelist. Paul had a passion for evangelism because God has a passion for evangelism. Jesus, the Bible says, came to seek and to save. Jesus was the first missionary. Stepped out of heaven. Went to an unknown land. Took on human flesh. Our God is a, a God that has an evangelistic heart. And Paul had that heart. I think, first of all, we have to ask, well, why did Paul have this passion? What sort of stirred in Paul's heart to make him have this passion? What would compel Paul to get on a boat and walk across barren wastelands and go to cities and be stoned and be mocked and ridiculed? What drove him? Why did he have this passion? I think we learn here in our text, it's because he realized that time is short. He realized that now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, he says. Not next week, not next year. Paul didn't have the mindset, well, somebody else will do it, or if they're really meant to get saved, they will. Somebody will come along. Paul had the understanding that this life is like a vapor. That this life is very short. And we're not promised tomorrow. And when we have that kind of mindset, all of a sudden we begin to think of things differently. All of a sudden when we're sitting across from Grandma at the Thanksgiving table and we realize that she's 80 years old, we think, wow, Grandma might not be here next Thanksgiving. And Grandma doesn't know Jesus. Or when we're sitting across from, you know, our cousin who's 20 years old, we realize, you know, he rides a motorcycle. And he's crazy. And he may not be here next Thanksgiving. Or when you're sitting across from your mom or your dad or anybody, 
you begin to realize that, man, every day people step out in the street and get hit by a car. Every day people go to work and have an accident and die and they didn't expect to. Every day people have heart attacks and people get diagnosed with cancer and people are murdered and on and on. This is a a very delicate thing that we possess, this thing we call life. And as a young person, you know, you kind of think you're indestructible. You kind of think that you're eternal, that you'll never die. You can't even process that concept until something tragic happens to you and it changes your priorities. You know, when even as little of a deal as it was, when, when I lost my eye at 17, a piece of metal shot through my eye and I spent time in the hospital and multiple surgeries and still don't have sight in it to this day, I realized I'm not indestructible. I realized that, man, things can happen to me. It's not just the other guy. You guys, that was an understanding that Paul clearly had. And it created within him a passion for the lost. He recognized that today is the day of salvation. And I would just encourage you, if you don't know the Lord, if you've been, you know, wondering about the Lord, this verse is a verse that should create within us a sense of urgency. He quotes Isaiah 49, In the acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time, Paul says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It creates within us a sense of urgency. Ten years ago or so, I worked at Costco. And Costco is a place that, if you've noticed, they don't have a lot of wasted labor. You didn't just have people standing around with vests on, you know, may I help you? You know, they don't they don't function that way. It's like if you're standing around, that means you should go home. If you don't have something to do, we're not going to pay you to do nothing. And when you are doing something, they expect you to run. Especially when you're new. And there's like this three month probation period. And in that three months they can fire you for anything. At any time. And I remember after my three months was over, they sat me down and, and they said, look, you're doing a really good job. And it was this really hard-nosed supervisor. And he's like, the only thing I have to say is, is I just want to see a little more sense of urgency. Which in his thinking meant that you run everywhere you go. And so when you're out doing carts and it's pouring down rain and there's people trying to kill you with their vehicles... They want you to run. So, you know, of course, that's what was going through my mind. I'm thinking, okay, you want me to run through the rain, get the carts, and then push them back, uh, you know, up hills because it's the parking lot's got all these dips and valleys in it, and do that for eight hours. You know, that was what was going through my mind. But that's what he meant by a sense of urgency. It means run. And here I think Paul is appealing to us. He's saying you need to have a sense of urgency. 
about your life. The fact that this life is short should motivate you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It should motivate you to get saved if you're not. Today is the day of salvation. And we've seen sort of here Paul's heart for the lost. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't really think I have a heart for the lost. I don't have that passion for the lost that Paul had. I don't feel compelled to get on boats and even today planes and certainly wouldn't feel compelled to get stoned and beaten and keep going. I don't have that kind of heart. I don't even have a heart for the neighbor across the street. I mean, honestly, it's just not part of my thinking. You know what? I think if we're honest, that's probably true of some of us. Maybe all of us. Certainly we could all have more of a heart. But maybe some of us are thinking, I don't have any heart. How do I get it and then how do I keep it? I think Paul gives us some insight. In verse 1 he says, We then as workers together with Him. That's key. If you want to have a heart for the lost, it involves working together with Jesus. It's a partnership. It's a cooperation. In other words, if you stay close to Jesus, you'll have His heart. If you've noticed that you've kind of been drifting in your priorities and what's important to you and what's passion of your heart, there's a reason for that. It's because you're not close to Jesus. You guys, when I'm not in the Word, when I'm not in prayer, when I'm not in fellowship with God, it does not take me very long to have completely different priorities to have a completely different heart than God's heart. We need to stay close to Jesus. If we want to have that heart, if we want to have His heart, work with Jesus. Stay close to Him. We'll have the words to share with people. You know, often we don't share because we think, oh man, I I don't know what to say. Well, stay close to Jesus and you'll know what to say. He'll give you the words. I'm just not bold enough. I don't have the courage. Stay close to Jesus and you'll have boldness. And this heart for the lost, you guys, really, it transcends our entire life. It really is a heart for people in general. As believers, when we work together with Him, when we are in fellowship with Him, when we are in partnership with Him, when we're spending time with Him, when we're staying close to Him, we become like Him. This is a a really key thing for you to understand. You become like what you worship. The central focus of your life will begin to become the characteristic of your life. And so if money is the central focus of your life, you will become like money. And just think of all of the characteristics of money, and that's what you will become. If the central focus of your life is to have pleasure, then you'll become like that. Just think about the things that are the focus of many people's lives, and they and you and I will become like that thing that we are focused on. But if you guys, if the central focus of our life is Jesus, if we're working together with Him, we'll become like Him. We'll have His heart. The things that are important to Him will be important to us. And you know what? 
in a very natural way, we'll begin to be in the will of God. Just walk in His will. As you're working together with Him, you're in His will. That's why Augustine said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then do whatever you want. Because when you're working together with Him, you're going to be doing what He wants you to do. You won't have to ask what's God's will. You'll know it. His heart and your heart will begin to beat as one. The Bible says that David had a heart after God's heart. David was a a man of many weaknesses. You could spend months and years just studying the weaknesses of David. He had many weaknesses. He was a horrible father. He was a terrible husband in many ways. He, he was not a great leader in, in a lot of the ways that he dealt with people. But in all the weaknesses that David had, David was a man who had a heart after God's heart. He was a man who worshipped God. And God honored that. And when you read the Psalms of David, you get a glimpse into a man who had insight well beyond what he should have. He didn't have the New Testament. David didn't have Jesus to look to. But David understood Jesus in a way that I I wonder if we do, even with the revelation we have. David understood that God doesn't desire sacrifice. That what God desires is a broken heart. David understood these things because he had a heart after God's heart. Did it make him perfect? No. But he wanted to pursue God. He said in Psalm 42 that as the deer pants for the water, so my heart longs for you, O God. It was A.W. Tozier who had an apprentice guy that was being discipled by him, kind of a Timothy and and Tozier was talking with him one day and, and the kid said, you know, Tozier, I, I just I want to know God more. I, I want to know his heart. I want to be closer to him. And so Tozier said, well, come with me. Come down to the, to the creek. I want to show you something. So they went down to the creek and he, he told the young guy, he said, look, get down on your hands and knees and look into the creek. And so the guy kind of hesitantly did it and he, he looks down the creek and, and Tozer said, what do you see? He says, I see my reflection, I guess. He said, well, get, get closer. Get a little closer. In fact, get, get close enough where your nose is touching the water. So he, he did that and he said, what do you see? I, I don't really see anything now. So said, well, get, get a little closer. In fact, put, put your head under the water. And so the young guy put his head under the water and then Tozer shoved his head down even further and held on to him for like a minute. The guy's kicking and screaming, can't breathe. He pulled him up out of the water and the guy's like, what are you doing? You trying to kill me? And he said, no. But when you want God as much as you wanted that next breath, that's when you desire God. That's when you truly have His heart. And it's true. Do we really have a heart for the things of God? 
when we do, when we do, our heart will beat like his. We'll have a passion for the things that he's passionate about. The things that are important to him will be important to us. And it's working together with him. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that happens. We become like Jesus. And Jesus, you guys, above everything, had a heart for people. That's what motivated him to come to earth. He loved us. He had a heart for us. He had a heart for sinners. He had a heart for the demon-possessed, for the lepers, for the sick, for the poor. This is not natural to us. Okay, It is natural for us to have a heart for people that are attractive, for people that are loving, for people that are caring, for people that are fun to be around, for people that have money. That's, that's easy for us. Don't pat yourself on the back too quickly if you have a heart for those kind of people. That's natural. You guys, what we've got to become is people that work in the supernatural. People that are living their lives not in natural ways, but in ways that are very unnatural to our flesh. That's when we know we're on to something. That's when we know we're operating with the power of the Spirit. That's when we know we have God's heart. Is when we have a heart for people that we really would never have a heart for apart from, our, apart from God's presence in our life. We've got to start functioning in the realm of the supernatural. And it comes by working together with Him. A lot of us, I think, are functioning even in ministry. Even in our service to God, we're functioning in very natural ways. In ways that are very easy. Because it's not hard to bless people if you think you're going to get blessed in return. It's not hard to minister to people if you think you're going to get something out of it like a pat on the back or appreciation. you know. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be appreciated because it's a very important thing. But if that is what we're doing, we're looking for those things and when we don't get it, we begin to get discouraged and disappointed and want to quit. We're functioning in the natural. Functioning in our flesh. In my heart, my desire as a pastor for myself, most importantly, and for you certainly, is that we would function in the realm of the supernatural. We would have God's heart. That He would infuse His heart into our heart. Working together with Him. It will give you a passion for the lost. And you'll keep it. Well, the second glimpse into Paul's heart that we get this morning is Paul's heart to finish well. Verses 3 and the beginning of 4. Read those with me. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Paul had a heart to finish well. I think that we all have a desire to begin well. That comes natural to us. 
Beginning well is not hard. Finishing well is a different story. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Beginning something is not hard. There are multitudes of books that I've begun that I didn't finish. There are classes online, Bible college classes that I just never finished. Degrees that I thought I was going to get that I didn't. There's business opportunities that I started that just were a joke. Things that I've done that I started well and didn't end so well. And you know, that's not a big deal. We've all done that. We've all had things that we started off into and then we realized it's not a good thing or, or we just didn't have the energy for it or the time or the money and we quit. But we're not talking about starting a book and not finishing it. You know, that might offend the author if he found out, but probably very few other people are going to be offended by that. And maybe in some of your business ventures you've lost some money and some things haven't been great, but it's not the end of the world. What we're talking about here is very important, and that is finishing well in ministry. And you think, well, you know, that's good for you. I hope you do finish well, Ryan, but, you know, how does that apply to me? Well, we've been talking about the fact that this is not ministry in and of itself. What I do is a part of ministry. What you do is ministry as well. Our lives are ministry. We are ministers. And so as ministers, we ought to have a heart to finish well. Not to just start well and look good and then fizzle out. But we want to finish well. And the way that Paul desired to finish well is that he didn't want to discredit his ministry in any way. I think we can all think of, you know, a lot of the scandals that have happened in the church, even recently with Ted Haggard and, and that whole travesty. And it does. It, it gives a bad name to Jesus. It makes his followers look bad. And it affects a lot of people. But you don't have to be a national Bible teacher or the head of the National Evangelistic Association to hurt people, to affect people. We all need to finish well. We all need to be sensitive to how we're living our life because we don't want to discredit our ministry in any way, shape, or form. Paul said, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Paul was careful not to put a stumbling block in the way of anybody, whether they were saved or unsaved. He didn't want to put a stumbling block. He didn't want to put a barrier. He didn't want to erect any walls in his life that would affect in a negative way his ability to minister to people. Have you thought about that in your own life? Are there things that you're doing that God is showing you, look, that is offending people. 
You need to, to knock that off. You need to not do that. You need to not exercise that liberty. Even though you have the liberty to do it, you need to not do it because it's affecting your ministry. It's affecting your ability to bless people, to minister to people, to touch people's lives. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 9.19. It's an amazing verse. For though I am free from all men, Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. That's heavy. Paul said, I'm free from all men. In other words, I don't owe anybody anything. I'm not obligated to anybody. And we like that. As humans, we love that. We don't like to be obligated to people. We don't like to owe people things. We don't like to have to give favors. We want to be free. Paul says, I am free. I don't owe anybody anything. But I've become a slave that I might win the more. Paul said, though I'm free from you, I've become a slave for you that I might bless you, that I might minister to you, that I might be effective to touch your life with Jesus. It's amazing. It's called self-sacrifice. Paul didn't want to discredit his ministry in any way. He didn't want his personal life to get in the way of his ministry. And he was willing to give up anything. He said in 1 Corinthians, he gave up eating meat because it was offending certain people. Now, I don't think that meant that Paul gave up eating meat for the rest of his life. I think it meant that while he was in Corinth, Paul didn't eat meat. But if he went to another area and that wasn't a big deal, Paul would eat meat. See, these are gray areas. These are things that some people would be offended by, but other people wouldn't be, and you have to be sensitive. We're not talking about blatant sin. It's not like, yeah, you know, you can do that around certain people, but don't do it around others, you know, and it's blatant sin. No. We're not talking about things that God has revealed to us that are wrong, that are sinful, that are hurtful to His heart. We're talking about maybe cultural things. If you go to England, you go to a pastor's conference in Europe. During the break, you'll just see pastors just smoking one after another. You know, that's just part of the culture, just, you know, puffing them down. And for me, that's a little strange because I kind of associate smoking with um, my life before Christ. I, I never smoked, but, you know, my parents did and a lot of people I knew did. And, and to me, there's th- things that are associated with that that probably aren't good. And in our society, smoking is something that we're not real comfortable with from people that we respect and look up to in, in the church. And so, you know, like if you saw me smoking away after church, that would probably offend you. And so although I might have the liberty to do it, it's not sinful. It's not any more sinful than than eating something that's unhealthy. But I could be powering down Big Macs and eating unhealthy, which a lot of you guys know that I do. (laughs) And it doesn't offend you because of our society. See? So I have that liberty. But let's say the Lord was to say, Ryan, you need to, you know, really cut out the sodas because it's offending people. If I really felt like that was something God was showing me, then I would be at a place where I would have to choose between 
honoring God or honoring my own desires. I would be at a place where I would have to choose between ministering to people or serving myself. And you can apply that across the board. Those same guys, those same pastors that smoke like chimneys, if they saw us having like a pool party or going to the lake and swimming together with, you know, men and women who aren't married, that would offend them greatly. It's not part of their culture. They don't understand that. We would look at that and go, well, it's not a big deal. Everybody's clothed and nobody's doing anything inappropriately. But for them, that would be weird. I mean, you don't even have to go to Europe. You just go to different parts of our country. You go down to the south and there's things that we do here that they don't do and vice versa. So you have to be careful. And even you guys in your families, even in your neighborhoods, even in your workplaces, there are people that see things differently than you. There are people that don't have the liberties that you have. And you have to be careful. I have to be careful that nothing that we are doing is offending someone. Now, look, I'm not advocating that you go home and you get rid of your TV and you throw out all the secular music you own and you get rid of uh, anything that might be deemed offensive to somebody. I'm saying be sensitive to the Lord. Don't listen to me. That's why I don't get up here and I I don't say, look, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do this when it comes to gray areas. That's why I'm not real big on, you know, like slamming different things. And, you know, we get all this stuff in the mail, you know. Uh, Here's an eight-week thing on Harry Potter and how you can rid it from your community or whatever. And I mean, as if Harry Potter is our major problem, you know. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. I think we got bigger fish to fry than Harry Potter. I think it's that big of a deal. Same people, you know, picket the movie theater, true story, will picket the movie theater when Harry Potter is there, but then they'll go watch Lord of the Rings. It's the same thing. It's a little different. Because Tolkien was supposed to be a Christian or something. We've got to be honest here. That kind of stuff makes people look at the church and go, you guys have a double standard. You know, somebody can produce a song that has nothing to do with Jesus. But they are a Christian, supposedly. And we'll listen to that all day. You know, Amy Grant or whatever back in the day. You know, her music had nothing to do do with Jesus later on in her career. But she's a Christian, Mom. But then if it's Kelly Clarkson, oh, well, that's from the devil. You know, because she doesn't know Jesus. Come on. They're saying the same things. So if you are going to have that kind of a standard, then have it across the board. But don't have these kind of weird notions that, you know, if something's secular, that means it's bad. You need to be sensitive to the Lord. If God is showing you not to listen to that kind of music, you know, there... There was a time where, where the Lord just really made that clear to me. I want you to get rid of that for a time. But you know what? That really isn't a part of my heart anymore. It doesn't really affect me. It doesn't really uh, offend. It hasn't been an offense. But if I found it to be, then I would have to deal with that. 
Now, again, we're not talking about music that would, you know, worship Satan or, you know, talk about, you know, crude and rude things. Again, we're talking about gray areas here. I think it's ever good to put things into your mind that are sinful or wrong. I'm just talking about things that may not be what we would call Christian music or a Christian movie. Some people have a conviction they don't go to movies. Hey, God bless you. You're better off for it. Save money. Save time. You know, there's better ways to spend your time. But I don't have that conviction. I I go to the movies. I have a TV. But if God was to show me, Ryan, that's offensive. You've offended somebody. Then I would have to reevaluate that freedom. You see what I'm saying? We have to be willing to give up any freedom that we have for the sake of ministry. I have a, a friend who just recently has been convicted by the Lord in some of the words that he chooses to use. He, you know, once in a while will use a word that we would probably call a cuss word. And, you know, he's a pastor. He loves the Lord. He's a, he's a great example to me. But for emphasis and for exclamation and to make a point, sometimes, and he's even done it from the pulpit. He he said, one time I had like five families leave. He said, it just came out of my mouth. I I didn't mean to say it, but it just sort of, it just kind of happened. And, you know, he was talking about Jesus and how Jesus cleansed the temple and purified the temple. And, you know, he made this comment about Jesus and who he was, you know, and he was a tough guy and and he said it just kind of came out of my mouth. And his wife has been like saying, look, this you need to quit that. You, you shouldn't do that. And he said that he's just kind of, you know, brushed it off for years. Just said, I'm not convicted about it. Not so much from the pulpit, but, you know, like in just talking to people. And, and again, I'm not talking about really vulgar words. I'm just talking about some words that we would probably think were inappropriate. And he just kind of put it off, brushed it off. But just the other day, somebody told him, they said, look, some of the words you use offend me. And he said it just hit him. He said he realized that it wasn't about his wife nagging him. It wasn't about the fact that, you know, he had the liberty. He was now seeing that his liberty was an offense to some people. And that it needed to stop. And so he told his wife, he said, look, you can help me. He said, because I know that I'll continue to use some of those words because they make me laugh and I think they're funny and they make a point, whatever. He said, I'll probably say it. He said, but you're not going to help me by saying, um, you know, I thought you said you were never going to say that again. Or, you know, what happened to that or anything like that. He said, the way you can help me is by saying, remember what God showed you? Remember how you said it was affecting your ministry and your ability to minister to people? He said, that, that's how you can help me. So you guys, we have to be willing to give up any freedom that we have for the sake of ministry. Whatever freedom it is that you have, that maybe would offend somebody else. If you find out that it's offending someone, then like Paul, you would want to say, I don't want to give an offense in anything. 
that our ministry may not be blamed because I want to finish well. Let's talk about Paul's heart to grow. Verses 4 through 10, the end of verse 4 through 10. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Here we see Paul's heart to grow. In verses 4 and 5, what we find there is what happened to Paul. It was the problems in his ministry. And we've talked a lot about that. And Paul talks a lot about that. He doesn't try to paint like this rosy picture that everything was just perfect. He said, there's a lot of difficulties. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul said he was despairing even of life. This was not easy ministry. This was very difficult. Paul says that he was beaten and imprisoned here. That he faced angry mobs. That he worked himself to exhaustion. That he went without sleep and without food. These are the things that that Paul experienced. These are the things that happened to him. The problems. In verses 6 and 7, we see how he handled it. You might call them the provisions. And they are provisions because it was God providing for him through it. It was God making it work. Because I think that list of problems, the things that happened to Paul, for a lot of us that would be our Dear John letter to ministry. Here's the reason why I quit. I was beaten in prison, faced angry mobs, worked myself to exhaustion, went without sleep, went without food. You know, I mean, most of us don't have that kind of a list, but you've got your own list of difficulties and you think, you know, it's not worth it. And so I quit. But Paul said, no, these are the things that allowed me to grow. These are the things that made me a better minister. See, that was Paul's heart, you guys. And it's the point that I want to make to you. Is that Paul had such a heart to minister to people that even his difficulties he saw as a catalyst to make him a better minister. And we see how he handled it. In verses 6 and 7, as he says, By, by these things, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering which means to dwell with people patiently. By kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Those are the fruits. These things that Paul talks about in verse 6 are fruits. And fruit, you guys, is growth. You can't have growth without fruit. Fruit is 
the demonstration of our growth as believers. And these were the fruits that came out of Paul's difficulties. Purity of heart and action and motive. Paul could say, look, here's my heart. It's pure. He said that he had a desire to pursue the knowledge of Jesus. He said he had a heart to patiently endure with people. He said by the power of the Spirit, by sincere love, these are fruits and they're provisions. They're a natural byproduct of staying close to Jesus. And as we stay close to Jesus, as we work together with Him, there's fruits that will come out of our life. There will be fruits that come out of your difficulties. Because Paul wanted to grow. He didn't want to just exist. And so even in his difficulties, he said, well, I have such a desire to grow. I have such a heart to become more like God that even those things I'm going to use as a means to, to that end. And then we see the things that bring these fruits. In verse 7. He says, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness. Three things that Paul says brought this fruit in his life, that brought this growth in his life, that enabled him to handle these difficult situations. Three more provisions. We see the initial provision, which is the fruit, and then this is the provision that brought the fruit. These things were given to Paul. The word of God, the power of God, the armor of God. As we have the armor on, as we protect our heart and our mind, as we shield ourselves from the attacks of the enemy, as we take up God's armor, there's fruitfulness that abounds as a result. The power of God. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can produce fruit in our life. And the Word of God, there's there's fruit that will blossom forth in your life if you're a person of the Word. So these are the things that allowed Paul to handle these difficulties and to produce fruit out of these difficulties. And then in verses 8 through 10, we see how others perceived it. So you see the problems, all the things he listed, then the provisions, now the perceptions. Because you guys, when you're going through difficulties and you handle them well and you produce fruit out of them and you grow, that's sort of odd to people. And they don't understand it. And so you get different perceptions. Paul said, I want to have God's perspective on things. But here's how you guys are perceiving me. See, Paul was getting a lot of flack from the church at Corinth because they perceived things wrong. They perceived him wrong. They had worldly eyes and worldly thoughts. Paul says, I want you to perceive things the way God does. Listen to how he describes it. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. And so some people were calling Paul a liar. And yet he's saying, I'm not. You can perceive it that way, but it's not the truth. As unknown and yet well-known, 
Paul's like, you know, some people know who I am. I'm famous in some circles. I'm anonymous in others. It doesn't matter. As dying and behold, we live. Some people would look at Paul and he'd say, you might as well be dead. Paul says, man, I've never experienced such life. As chastened and yet not killed. In other words, yeah, I went through a lot of difficulties, but I never came to the point of death. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. People would look at Paul and they'd say, man, highly educated, highly intelligent, very talented, very passionate, has the right pedigree. This is a recipe for success. But you're broke. You've given your life to travel in the world telling people about Jesus. That's a loser. That's not success. That's poverty. Paul would say, well, you call it poverty, and yet I've done it because I've made many rich. Yes, you've got to look at things differently. The world wants to look at you and say, you know, uh, you've given up all this success and all these things to pursue ministry and to serve people and to give your life for the sake of others. That's not smart. You're unsuccessful in the world's eyes. And yet, we have the perception that we're making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. We may not have a lot in this life. And yet we possess all things, Paul says. The Bible says that we've been given all things for a life of godliness. The Bible says that We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're rich in the Lord. That's the perspective that Paul had. And this perspective, these perceptions came out of his growth. It came out of his desire to grow. He had a heart to grow. And you guys, I want to close with this. And that is that you need to have a heart to grow. You need to have a heart to become a better minister, a better you fill in the blank, whatever it is you are. A better mom, a better dad, a better wife, a better husband, a better child, better at your job, better at sharing the gospel with people, a better believer, better Christian, growing, should never be satisfied with status quo. God will patiently endure with us if we don't want to grow. That's okay. It's your choice. But God wants to pour into you. God wants to stretch you. God wants to take you deeper with Him. He wants to draw you closer to Himself. And it's your choice. It's my choice whether we are going to respond to that and whether we are going to grow. It was a few years ago, I sat down with a guy that was helping in ministry here. And I asked him a question. I said, hey, what do you think is the the biggest weakness of the church? What do you think is the thing that we need to improve on? 
He thinks it's the thing that we can do better. And I had, you know, four or five things that I thought he would say. I was ready for those, and I thought, yeah, we'll deal with that. But what he said was not what I expected him to say, and it offended me. In fact, our relationship really never recovered after that. However, I realize now, looking back, that what he said was true. He just didn't become the solution. He didn't help me. He just wanted to say it and then not help me to improve. And what he said was, I asked him, I said, what do you think we can improve? What do you think is the number one thing that we can do better? And he said, your Bible teaching. And it hit me pretty hard. I didn't really show it to him. I didn't really say, oh, yeah, you know, we kind of talked a little bit. But in my mind, I said, I can never trust this person again. In my mind, I thought, it, you know, this, this is going to go down a ball of flames. However, looking back on what he said a few years later, I realized that he was right. Because it was about a year after that that I asked a friend of mine who I respect a lot. And, and I said, hey, how, how do you think I could become a better Bible teacher? How do you think I could become better at what I do? And he said, well, I haven't heard you a lot. But just kind of in what I have heard and, and, and just my own experience. And he said, I think that, that you need to, to connect with people more. I think you need to share your heart more. I think you need to not make statements that are good for a book, but don't really apply to people. Make, make statements that apply. Make statements that, that will hit people in their hearts and, and be honest and open with people. And at first... I didn't really understand what he meant. I didn't really think that was a problem for me. Just like when I talked to the guy two years ago, and he said, your Bible teaching, and, and frankly, it upset me. Because I thought, that's not the number one weakness of the church, which, I mean, honestly, I don't think that was, but it was probably the number one thing I needed to work on, for sure. And... As I heard that from my friend, you know, a year later or so, I thought, okay, well, that, that's kind of cool. I don't really know what that means. But then it, God began to really stir that in my heart. And it began to make sense to me. And I began to, to share more of my heart. And I began to connect with people more, connect with you guys. And at least that's my desire. And now looking back on what was said... Yeah, that was very hurtful to me. And it did end our relationship. And it was something that, you know, wasn't probably handled right. I don't think from his vantage point. However, God used it. And so you guys, when God is doing something in your life, it may come through areas and means and people that you wouldn't expect. But if you want to grow, you've got to start asking hard questions. You've got to start asking people, how do I need to improve? And open your heart. And don't be afraid of what they're going to say. Don't be afraid of how you might be hurt. 
Because the only thing that's going to get hurt is your pride. And that needs to go anyway. If you want to grow, if you want to become more like the Lord, if you want to become better at what you do, and I think it could even apply in your occupation. It's not really what I'm thinking of right now. But it could even apply in that. If you want to become more like the Lord, find somebody that you respect. Find somebody that's been walking with Him longer. Find somebody that's been parenting longer, that's been married longer, that is successful, that loves Jesus, and ask them, how can I improve? And then be ready. It might not feel good initially. Those are questions, you guys, that people don't ask very often. Because we're prideful. Because we don't want to hear what might come. But if you want to grow, those are questions you need to ask. Because there's things in your life that you don't even notice. There's areas of your life that are affecting you and offending others that you're not even aware of. There's areas of your life that are hindering your growth and you can't see it. Others can. But most people aren't just going to come up to you and say something. You need to ask. How can I improve? How can I be a better Sunday school teacher? How, how can I improve in this area? It's a question I don't get very often. Because I think we don't want to hear about it. But we need to. We need to have a heart to grow. We need to have a heart to be stretched in our relationship with the Lord. Let's stand and pray together. Father, I just thank You for this time. Time in Your Word and, and time to, uh, to reflect upon Your Word.